Thanks for tuning in to Mystic Witch. I'm your host, Blue. You can find out more about me at bluejunetarot.com. Mystic Witch is a podcast about magic, divination, and all things supernatural. Hey, Mystic Witches. Cuban-Colombian writer Lorraine Montague holds a PhD in communication whose essential research in reclaiming ancestral healing traditions brought the world her compelling book, Brujas, The Magic and Power of Witches of Color. Lorraine not only leads workshops on astrology, plants, and moon circles in St. Petersburg, Florida, her interests also extend to long-distance hiking, folklore, and backyard beekeeping. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you. Hi. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. Yes. Uh, So let's begin by discussing any witch who's done any research knows that pagan and indigenous practices all over the world have been silenced throughout history but can you explain a little bit more about why your book is so vital in our modern times? Well, first, thank you um, for saying that. That's very flattering. (laughs) Um, It took me a while to build the confidence to own that, that it's, you know, uh, a vital work. Um, I really came to it through a curiosity myself. I um, was raised uh, assimilated to Catholicism, um, like a lot of Latinx families, uh, we left behind um, our ancestral traditions when we moved to this country. And um, so even though uh, we had all these stories about stuff that happened in our home countries, um, I didn't have access to details. Um, details about what happened when my great-grandmother operated as a spirit medium in Cuba. And so I came to this work through a curiosity about my own lineage and family history. Uh, And that's where the research began. And through that, um, over the years, this was a many years project, probably spanned a decade um, throughout my graduate research I found that I wasn't the only one, and I was, I know it sounds kind of trite now, but it was very surprising at the time to see that it was so prevalent, this, um, this experience of having um, deleted scenes, basically deleted histories, um, silences, uh, blank spots um, in our um, story. And so I started to talk just very slowly to others who uh, were the children of um, Latinx immigrants, of um, indigenous American uh, families, um, Afro-Caribbean descent, who felt this void, this disconnect, and were trying to somehow return to it. And through that process, um, the idea of the book came Um, It expanded beyond my personal experience and history with my family to a wider um, question of, you know, why is it that these histories have been suppressed? Yeah. You rescued these stories. Ah, that's so nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, 
I not, you know, I not to come off as a savior sort. So I, (laughs) (laughs) I, um, gave space for others to rescue their own stories, I think is what I prefer to see it as. Um, Beautiful. Yeah. I, I felt a really big responsibility to open this platform up that I was so privileged to have to anybody who wanted to participate. Um, And so when I conceived of Brujas, the book, which was an extension of my dissertation and PhD research, which was more personal, this one having been opened up to a larger cultural commentary, I thought it was very important that it wasn't just my story, which is very, you know, specific and um, and limited to my perception. There are so many other traditions and there are so many other experiences of being a child of immigrants in this country. And I wanted to make sure that I was representing as much as I could the, the nuance and the diversity of this group of people who are reclaiming the word witch, mm-hmm. which used to be, a bit, and still kind of is, a very bad word. Especially yeah, like a vilified, yeah. Bruja is still very vilified. Mm-hmm. So um, being, you know, myself a white presenting uh, Latina I also thought it was especially important that my voice wasn't the only one because my experience is a little different than someone who has visibly brown skin in this country. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, how it became a community project um, rather than a me project. I love that. And your book also centers around Bruhex feminism. Can you explain a bit more about the importance of raising voices of color in the spiritual community? Yeah, so um, what I thought was really interesting um, is that this new brand of witchcraft feminism, of which Bruhex, Bruha feminism is a part, is mirroring a larger uh, feminism that is more intersectional, that is more inclusive of different uh, backgrounds and genders uh, and orientations, um, which differs a lot from the way feminism worked, you know, in the 70s and then before that. uh, It's like it's always evolving and so is witchcraft. So I thought that was really interesting that it evolves uh, in parallel to larger feminist movements. Um, And so when we say Bruhex feminism, We're saying, you know, we are reclaiming our power and we are standing in our power and we are um, we are doing so at the risk of exposing secrets in our own family that will leave us vulnerable to attack. Um, Some of the things that we talk about were kept secret in our families for so long for various reasons, because of, um, you know, having to immigrate from violent situations um, and then having to assimilate. Um, Talking about this stuff and bringing it onto the open, the stuff that we used to practice um, in our home countries, the things that we were trying to keep secret for our own safety, to bring them up is to expose and make vulnerable our very families. And so to be this kind of feminist, I think, is to 
have the courage to open up instead of close down. And so I think I see this in larger feminist practices is like a, a more inclusiveness and openness and risk taking. Mm. Um, and also in Bruhex feminism, this idea that what was once in the shadows can come to light um, and that in doing so we can connect to others a lot more than keeping things um, secret and closed. And that's a tough, it's a tough balance to strike because there are still many traditions that should remain closed in the sense that they should be protected and um, respected mm -hmm. because certain people aren't invited. But there is also a call to be able to share to preserve certain traditions. And how do we do that if we never talk about them and never share them? So it is a tricky balance. That's that, fair. Yeah, that lots of people are, you know, they're in this like transitioning space of trying to figure out. Yeah. Well, could you clarify for us the importance of respecting those closed practices versus open ones? And just, I guess, a little bit more about, I'm, I'm assuming that plays into also the vulnerability of the community as well. Yes, for sure. So there are certain traditions that are still very much reserved for certain groups of people. And the, the best example I can think of is Vodou. Um, which, you know, is in, in my opinion and in a lot of people who have spoken with opinion, um, reserved for black practitioners. Um, these are, this is a tradition that came out of, um, having to protect sacred rites and rituals in the face of the slave trade and colonization um, by white people. Um, and so I, through speaking to various practitioners, have realized, you know, what, what an affront it is to them for these things to be so out in the open in a commercialized way, up for the taking, up for the buying. Yeah. By you know, the very people who oppressed, oppressed those traditions. And of course, it's not the very people, individuals that are living now are not the same people who did these things, you know, centuries ago, but um, it still matters, you know, and there's still reparations to be made. And so as white practitioners, the very least we can do is respect those boundaries. And so how I, it's very tricky in certain, in certain spaces. It really is when you see, you know, a, if when you go to New Orleans and there's just all these shops and you can go legally and you can, you're invited to go and buy these things. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but how, I guess how I approached it is consent. Um, you know, have, have I acquired consent to practice this from a, you know, respected um, and someone who's observed as a, as a practitioner in this realm? And there have been times when I have been barred from doing so. And I 
you know, I've been denied, I've been rejected. And um, in those moments, I say thank you um, because I have been shown a boundary and that is very important. It's important to know where those boundaries and walls are, um, where I am not invited. And that's okay. That's part of the magic of doing this work is to um, learn your boundaries and approach your magic through what is yours. Yes what is available to you because that, that's going to be the most powerful magic you have. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's uh, it's limitations in general, spe- specifically what you're discussing with appropriation. Those boundaries are really important, but what I've learned is lim- you need to learn your limits mm-hmm. in general in this work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Necessity. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Limits are, are all what makes magic powerful, I think. If everything was accessible to everyone um, at all times, then what is the point even of doing the work? I yeah. Think, I think the work for me, you know, whatever we're talking about, whatever tradition of witchcraft or magic we are talking about or, you know, pagan traditions we're talking about, um, coming up to those limits tests your resolve, your endurance um and it helps you kind of come up to your baddies your shadows mm-hmm. the stuff that you're working on you know it helps you kind of like um reflect on your emotional um state you know coming up to these things there there were times when i felt excluded and I, you know there's that initial like lashing out of feeling mm-hmm. and then you wonder what is that and how can i use it and and reflect on myself and, and make myself better and focus on what is mine. That is such a hard thing for us to do. I think in a world where everything is for the taking Mm. to really focus, to focus on what you can build with your power. If you were to really dedicate yourself to it, instead of being scattered by everything that's available and trendy and, you know, exciting and new to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And just because something's right in front of you, (laughs) do the work. It's always better. I love, I think that's beautifully put. Thank you. So you're going to be presenting at the 2023 Botanica Obscura conference in March, which by the way is held online. So all can attend. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about your topic of plant folklore of the global South? Yeah, uh, so um, shout out to Kobe for putting together Botanica Obscura. It's an amazing conference. I think this year is going to be the best one yet. Mm -hmm. Um, He's built an amazing suite of practitioners um, from all over the country and maybe globe who are going to participate. And I'm just so, I guess I just got lucky because we live in the same town at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And he invited me and I, um, I met him because I moderated his book. Um, he wrote a book called the poison path herbal about, um, uh, poisonous plants and dark botany. Um, and I just fell in love with his mind and his Mm -hmm. very specific interest. This is a person who is really good at staying in their power and what's accessible to them and like very through disciplined work, like making it gold, you know, it's just like, this is his thing is a poison plant and it's amazing. So he's Mm. extended that to a community of people. And so I'll be presenting on plant folklore because uh, um, 
it's kind of an idea that I'm generating for my second book proposal. So this is like kind of the the beginning steps. So sneak peek, everyone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I will be looking at folklore in general for this next book of the Global South because it is um, an area that I think has not been written about very often. We have a lot of lore um, about European witchcraft um, written down at, at the moment. Um, obviously, still not enough. There's never enough lore because uh, <laughs> it is, uh, you know, traditionally passed down orally, right? But in particular, in the Global South, which includes, you know, South America, the Caribbean, um, Africa, um, Southeast Asia, there are so many stories that have not been recorded. Uh, and I would just love to spend some time exploring those stories. Um, the best example I can give is um, La Llorona is, uh, is one that has been plucked from oral tradition and has been recorded over the last years very often and has made it into movies and it's on Netflix, you know. Um, oh, I'm sure it's wildly misrepresented in those films, but I do love the story sure. of La Llorona. Yeah, it's it's a good one. It's like so rich. So, but there's plenty other stories like that that are just as strongly passed down through families. Um, and I've not seen an anthology of them. I've not seen them like kind of in one place where um, it also discusses the traditions they came from um, and the the ways that it relates to the magical person, the witch, the shadow person. So. I'd like to explore that for a while. So it's, it's just taking form. This is the seed. So Kobe's platform is really giving me the space and time and kind of the push to mm-hmm. get started. Um, for that, for that presentation, I'm going to focus on plant folklore because it is very prevalent as well. You know, the use of herbs um, and remedies and things like that um, in these stories. So yeah, stay tuned. It'll be March. I think it's March 18th through the 26th. So a full week of really cool presenters. Yeah, actually, some of our past guests, such as Devin Hunter and Nicholas Pearson, will also be presenting. So awesome. I'm going to link the tickets in the show notes. Um, they're a steal at $80, so you don't want to miss out. It's like a whole week of mm-hmm. I, it looks to me like 30 presenters just at a glance. It's a lot of people. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited. Um, I, I asked to be first. I'm like on the first day because I just want to like do my part and then just be an attendee, for the rest <laughs> of it, you know, and not have to worry about, oh, my presentation's coming up. Like, I'm just going to do mine. Everybody just come to mine first. I'll kick it off and we'll have a great week. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I know that, you know, you had mentioned that a lot of the stories had been lost, uh, but I I do believe that you were influenced a lot by your grandmother. And I was wondering if you would like to get personal and share a little bit about that. For sure. Yeah. Up to this point, I've kind of been speaking in like broad terms and, you know, of course, in the book, I get down to specifics and I, um, I weave in my own story because I think that's what grounds everything um, that I'm talking about, um, my stories and my and other stories as well. And at the center of mine is um, definitely my grandmother. Um, she was my grandmother's mother, my great grandmother, but I knew her as my abuelita. Like she 
I was raised with her because her daughter actually died before I was born. So she was my grandmother. Um, she was this mysterious figure in my life. She was very, she almost reminded me of like the queen of England. She's just like very tiny, Mm. um, and normal, you know, but I had these stories from my family about all the stuff that she used to do in Cuba, um, in Santiago, which is like the Southeast part of Cuba, um, close to the Sierra Maestra mountains. Um, and that there was a ritual that was talked about that she was like taken by a circle of witches to the mountains for initiation. I'm not sure if that was real or not. Um, <laughs> because every time I tried to talk to her about it, she would say, we've left that behind, you know, like many Cuban Americans mm-hmm. wanting to start over and not be ostracized in any way. Um, did not want to talk about it. Um, yeah. Talk about the revolution, did not want to talk about her um, practice. Um, but she was a very prolific practicing spirit medium, which I found, I found fascinating as a child, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I had already been starting to integrate into like Catholicism, doing the CCD classes, all that stuff. And I was always really into ritual and religion. So I thought it was kind of cool, but every time I asked questions in those classes, you know, they were like, they wouldn't answer them, you know? <laughs> and so I started to lose interest in these religions that just wanted to obey and accept and not question and not create personal practice. And so I turned to her in hopes to fill that kind of spiritual void I was feeling very early already. Uh, and she would do the same thing. She just sh- shut it down. I also started to experience things early, like probably around seven or eight years old. And I write about this too. Uh, where I'd had visitations, you know, visitations at night by these shadowy figures in my room and just disturbances, just like this feeling that the room was full, that there were a lot of voices. And I asked her about it and she would always tell me the same line, just close your eyes and pray. Close your (laughs) eyes and pray them away. She did not want to open me up to what she had experienced. Her practice came to a violent close when she tried to access her own daughter uh, in the spirit realm. Um, My grandmother, Elsie, died at 40 years old um, in New York of cancer shortly after immigrating. And one of her last forays into the spirit world uh, was trying to contact Elsie. And a figure that my dad remembers experiencing, he was in the room, a malevolent force entered her and battered her around the room. <gasps> yes. And then she fell down and, you know, the, this, the connection was lost. That's basically where we left off. You know, that's it. That's um, the end of our family's connection to the other world, to our um, homeland and that kind of, um, ancestral line was broken. Well, may I please offer to you the idea that the legacy is continued with you and reopens here. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. what, and that's the impetus for the work. And, um, what I came to find is we talk a lot about reclaiming and returning and yes, we're doing that, but we're also creating new things. We're creating new magic. Um, I think that's just as important, this 
uh, you know, a lot of people come to me, they, they want to know about their lineage, they want to know about their ancestry. And of course, I find that very vital to the work. But it's also important to know that you have the power, whether you know your ancestry or not, to create your own magic and to be the legacy for your future generations. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. That was so good. Oh That's it. We, we spoke for all this time for that little nugget right there. That nugget. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Wow, Lorraine, this has been honestly one of my favorite interviews ever. I would love to have you back sometime. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm excited about the community of Florida, which is that is emerging. Yes. Is there anything you want to offer people to connect with you or look at your website, any of that kind of stuff? Oh, the website. I am such the a plugs, the inevitable shameless promotion. <laughs> yes. I am such a Luddite and need a Gen Z assistant so desperately to Don't put we my all damn website up because I have the I've had the domain forever and I'm always like, I'm gonna work on it. That should be up shortly, <laughs> let's <laughs> say. Um, but in the meantime, you can always reach me at Witchy Hype on Instagram. I'm at Witchy Heights basically everywhere, but Instagram is the easiest way at the moment to reach me. Um, That's where we connected too. Yeah, and there's a link in the bio to like a contact form in in lieu of a website for the moment. But I I do want to put that up soon. And, you know, I'm trying to delve into the TikToks, but... (laughs) (laughs) Listen, you're you're talking to Gen X here. Really? I feel like, yes. (laughs) <laughs> I oh, you, feel you on all of that. Um, I will you must be link. drinking from the fountain of youth. Uh oh, this old thing stuff. <laughs> I'm an elder millennial, so almost there. I think I'm like the youngest you can be to be Gen X. I was born in '80, so. Oh, okay, yeah. I'm. I'm we're we're close. We're really close. Yeah, yeah. I feel <laughs> ancient lately. So, <laughs> which is cool. I'm gonna lean into the crone. Like I don't need an. I don't need to know about all those things. I know this is going to sound horrible, but I keep telling myself it's going to be good for business as a full-time tarot reader. Like people are going to be like, oh yeah, she knows. (laughs) Whatever makes me accept aging, I'm good with that. (laughs) For sure. I I, I aspire to be like the witch in the woods. That's, that's the ultimate goal. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Insert comment about Baba Yaga here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will link Witchy Heights Instagram also in the show notes. And uh, thank you again, Lorraine. This has been amazing. Thank you. Stay mystic, witches. Be sure to subscribe to Mystic Witch on any of your favorite platforms. And you can show your support by contributing monthly at anchor.fm or on our Patreon page. Follow us on social media to hear exclusive audio clips from our guests at Mystic Witch Podcast.